we uh, let's talk a little bit. How did you guys answer that first question? What do you think is the greatest hindrance to the believability of the Bible as the Word of God? Let you guys start. I heard some raucous things going on over here. Well, without looking at Dawkins' quote below, I talked about a lot of the kind of theories about how it's been redacted and revised and miscopied and just it, it's this textual mess of um, historical inaccuracy, as some people would say. Yeah. And and do you think that's true? You don't, but that's the perception. But, you think. but, but that, yeah, that's that's definitely something that, especially in educated circles, kind huh. of steers people away. From. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a very uneducated position, actually, that most academics wouldn't even agree with. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, we have an incredible. Uh, you can pretty you can pretty much guarantee. I mean, we. I mean, almost irrefutably, that the same documents that Ezra used. In 200 BC, um, that were used to preach the gospel to the Jews when they returned, remember, to the temple and restore the temple, and he pulled out the documents that we have. Uh, those, you know, we have a, a, a faithful copy of those exact documents. So it's pretty amazing when you th- stop and think about that, going all the way back to 200 BC, and um, and then of course we'll get to the New Testament and and the and the documents that we have for that, and we're gonna we'll touch on some of that. So that's good. Um, Anything else from that table? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Bible is a book about God primarily. Mm-hmm. He's the primary character. He is a spiritual being. Mm-hmm. And if you got a dead spirit, you know, <laughs> you so you, you, you're you're good at every week reminding us that unless God gives us His knowledge, we ain't going to get it. That's true. We believe that. That's called the doctrine of regeneration, and that's absolutely right. Well, we we are we are all spiritually dumb until we are awakened by the Spirit. Absolutely. Hey, Rob, good to see you. You want, yeah, you might want to get to the table. Well, we've kind of finished our round table, so I don't know. Um, what about this table? What was your well right here first? Who's going to say? Well, how did y'all answer the first one? What were some of the things y'all talked about? One thing that came out was the um, that, that people formed an opinion based on not having read the Bible, studied, or looked at it closely, or anything like that, but based on other people making comments mm-hmm. rather than having tried it themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's you're saying the hindrance is what they've heard, but not personally experienced. Okay. Anything else? How about the table back there? One thing that we said um, was just how it's, it's written down by men. Yeah. It's hard to understand how it's God's So by men, you don't mean gender men, you mean humans. Humans, right? Yeah. Okay. And so the, the whole issue, you're bringing the whole issue of, of, of inspiration. <laughs> this idea that God could speak infallibly through fallible human beings. That's a great, great issue. And we're going to have to talk about that tonight. That's great. What else? Anything else came out of that table or anybody else? You know, one of the things that I encourage you to do is read the critics. Um, listen to them. You know, sometimes 
Christianity gets very, uh, I think one of the ways that Christianity gets perverted is we, we really isolate ourselves in a way that we don't honestly listen to how our faith sounds, feels, is experienced by those who don't are part of our little guild, if you will. Now, being in New England, that's not very hard. <laughs> um, but uh, but still, listen. And so I, I, I really, you know, what do you think of this Dawkins quote, just generally, just your reaction to it? What do you think about it? I mean, the thing that stuck out at me, and maybe some others, is try to try to read the Bible as someone who hasn't been familiar with it, and it is just downright weird. <laughs> if you stop and think about it, there's a weirdness to this book. Uh, did you want to get in there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know that he was a believer, but I'm pretty confident he's read the Bible. You think? I, I do. I, I think he probably has. Yeah. I mean, he's read it, if nothing else, too, because he's had quite a few debates requiring that he read it and talk about it. So I would imagine, but I don't know for sure, you know. Reeves, did you want to say something? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like it was disjointed. Yeah. Some weird, yeah. Weird things in there. Yeah. Some of the Old Testament scriptures of instructing Israel to go kill and mm. slaughter and mm. mass genocide and mm. to include the animals and the salting of the land. And mm-hmm. then when they disobeyed mm-hmm. because they saved some children and women, he punished them. Yeah. And if you read that from, you know, it is sort of. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, we're, we're preaching through the book of Ezra, Esther. You're going to hear a sermon again this week on Esther. Were you there during that sermon a couple weeks ago? And, I mean, how weird is that? I mean, we've, we've got a woman who's, who's a heroine in the Bible who's, who's entertaining a Gentile sexually and pleasing him, and it's just crazy some of the stuff you're saying. And then later on, when... He, she convinces them to go and destroy these Gentiles, and they just destroy 500. Esther comes back and says, you haven't destroyed them enough, man. Go slaughter them all. I mean, literally, that's the, go slaughter them all. And we have all kinds of slaughter passages in the Old Testament. And then that brings people think, but how could you call this the same book? The New Testament's all about love. Really? Have you read Revelations? <laughs> you know, and so it's there on the surface, on the surface, Let's just be honest. There's a lot of people who read, who are, who are. I would say vaguely. Maybe that's to your point. Vaguely familiar with the Bible, and it seems very inchoate. But yeah, I, I hear that. But I mean, he's a scientist, right? Yeah. I've read enough quantum physics to think that it's plain weird, it's chaotic. Yeah. I yeah. mean, right? Two positive charges shouldn't attract each other, <laughs> but they do if they're in close proximity. Right? An absolute contradiction of other things. Oh, that's cool. I love science. So, Keep going. No, no, but just so, it, 
So I, I guess my, my point is that it's, it has to do also with the presupposition. Yes. Right? So the presupposition is that physics is right, even when there seem to be contradictions. Yeah. But the Bible is just plain wacko, mm-hmm. even if there are mm-hmm. contradictions, even if we could come up with the mm-hmm. coherent reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And that's also one of the things that's missing. His presupposition is that it doesn't matter what you tell me about the Bible. I'm always going to say it's true. And Doug, you weren't even here last week, and you're talking about this. Because that's exactly right. And everybody knows the word presuppositions right now. They're going, yeah, he's right. No, that's right. I mean... At the end of the day, there really isn't a filter, and a filter that begins with our own internal presuppositions and what we bring and what we expect to see when we bring that internal presupposition to the plate. And that's, again, why we're going to always go back to what our friend just said. You know, there's clearly these things are not discerned unless they are spiritually appraised, i.e. 1 Corinthians 3. And so there's no doubt about it. That's correct. But this, But still... I think it's important that we get in touch with the naturalist, the, the most guttural, natural response. And I think he raises some, some honest points, if not true, from our perspective, maybe. Um, and they're, they're, those aren't meant to be. Anybody else about the Dawkins reaction? Any group had something else to say about it? Yeah. I, I had said that Jack hit the nail on the head when he said that, you know, if you're trying to view the Bible through this sort of naturalistic intellectual lens, as Dawkins does, Mm -hmm. you're going to miss the entire point. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that his answer to question one was a great response to the Mm -hmm. Dawkins quote Mm -hmm. question two. Yeah, yeah, it is. All right, number three question. What did you think about that? And what, uh, put my glasses on, maybe I can see it. In what sense can it be said that the Bible is sufficient as authoritative rule of faith and Christian practice? Do we need any other source of guidance from God? I mean, the sufficiency of the Bible. Um, is it enough for me to live my life by it? What do y'all think? Mm-hmm. Okay. And what, what do we need it for? Him for? By the way, just, just a little caveat here. Who wrote the Bible? God. The scripture, God? It's the inspired word of God. God the Father, did he write it? God the Son, did he write it? God the Holy Spirit, let's get some theology going here. Who wrote this Bible? Who God? Okay, cooperative effort. Well, the scripture attributes the scripture to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the scriptures. That's the whole breathing out. Um, we'll look at that maybe in a minute. I don't have the scripture right in front of me. It's Peter, I think it is, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And of course, God God is the history. Uh, God is the decreer, if you will. Uh, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of, of, of the decree and, and history, and as well as, as, of course, our salvation. But it's the Holy Spirit. Remember, all over the place, and again, some scriptures we're going to look at today, uh, even Jesus, why did he send the Holy Spirit? To reveal things to you that have not yet been revealed. Now, many will take that to, and confuse that with illumination. He wasn't talking about illumination. Peter almost quotes him. In his, in his epistle, to speak of that event of the Holy Spirit being the Holy Scriptures, breathed out by God. God breathed by the Holy Spirit. And so there's a sense in which we, um, you know, so, so when we say we need the Holy Spirit, 
we're, we're already starting to get into a little bit of, a, of some... What do you mean? I thought the Holy Spirit is the Word of God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that gives us the Word of God. So what we need in addition to the Holy Spirit work of, of inscripturation? You, you mean something else, I think. Okay, there we got that other word coming out. Not revelation, but re- illumination. And without that illumination, we can't, we can't, we will not be capable of reading the scripture and understanding its, its intent. We, it's incapable. That's what it, Paul says that exact thing, right? They must be spiritually appraised. Eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear. You must be born again to hear this stuff. You just can't get it naturally. You know, um, many of us who've gone to seminary would tell you that, you know, you got some of the greatest New Testament scholar, Bultman, Rudolf Bultman. He probably is one of the best New Testament scholars that's ever been born. And he, I don't care who you are, what persuasion you are, um, you know, he is a good exegete. He knows the language. He knows the semantics. He knows all the stuff you need to know. Uh, And he knows it better than most to be able to bring forth the word of God. I would listen to his teaching any day of the month, and the guy's not a Christian. He doesn't understand the scripture. He understands the words. He understands the history. He understands the semantics. He understands the syntax. He understands, you know. But can he discern the scripture? He he can't without the Holy Spirit. So is the turning point for that person the Holy Spirit working within them? At the end of the day, yeah. It's, it's absolutely, we are 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit in order, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not that he circumvents the mind, but the Holy Spirit enables us, we're, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, we're going to get right back to that, but it's a great question, but that's, at the end of the day, the scripture everywhere says that a natural man, isn't that what it says in Corinthians, a natural person just can't understand these things. When Peter when Peter confesses Jesus Christ on his side, what did you, what did you say? Man cannot understand that. Man, that does not get revealed to you by man. Only God can reveal to you that he is the Messiah. That is that confessional faith-believing knowledge. Well, good. We, we're warmed up. That's what we wanted to do. Yeah. I, I think there's one other thing uh, involved because you say in, in uh, authoritative rule, faith, and Christian Rule of faith and practice, that's right. Yeah, and I I need uh, guidance Mm -hmm. in application Mm -hmm. of the truths that are in the Bible to my life. And that I attribute to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I I attribute a lot to providence, too. I mean, you know, it's the Holy Spirit enabled me to discern the intent of Scripture coupled with God's providence. So providence is going to be a really big word in interpretation as well. In other words, and we'll but let's 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 pray. We're going to come back around to that. Okay, this, this, I don't have the material in front of me. I have I have material for you about that in a minute. So let's let's open up in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, for our evening. Thank you already, man. It's fun. We're 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 starting to get it, and and it's exciting to do theology together. Not just talk about it, but to do it in, in the sense of of it being our system of belief, our our confession. And so, Father, we pray that your Spirit would be here. We. We acknowledge already, and we acknowledge it again in this prayer, that without your Holy Spirit softening our hearts, uh, regenerating our presuppositions, 
enabling our enabling us to embrace what the mind itself could perhaps understand in a academic sense but could not understand as a rule of faith and practice and so father help us now to know your scripture understand it from the scriptures own teaching we pray in Christ's name amen well uh, let's turn then if you so everyone does you have your uh, uh, you can go ahead and get this to that there, Aaron. But um, you should have a handout either on your computer or you've downloaded it or something. But we're on the handout, Holy Scripture. You can take it right from the, the website, as you know. Um, and here's a couple of passages. Would someone read Second Timothy 3 and then another Second Peter 1? It's the, right there at the beginning, section 1, 5, nature of Scripture. From your handout. Two observations. What are just? I'm, I'm thinking of two. There may be others, but do you have some observations about that? Really, pre- really briefly. I see two things there. Of course, you see the word "inspired." We're gonna have to get to that word. What that? What is that Greek word? What does it mean? Notice. Secondly, so we know its source. Inspired by God. Well, there's, yeah, I didn't, that wasn't one of my two, but that's a good observation. Yes, thank you. I mean, is it useful? I mean, let's kind of, let's don't take it for granted. It's useful. And I want you to notice the sufficiency for what, how many things? Everything we need. Now, that answers the question. Is there anything we need more than Scripture relative to being proficient, equipped for every good work? Scripture is sufficient. That's all we need, at least in terms of from God, the revelation from God. Now, we we need Scripture, as we're going to see, and we need the Holy Spirit in us in order to understand Scripture. And then Scripture, insofar as it is going to be incarnated into the history and the flesh of our life, our circumstances, our provinces, what I think Bill was referring to. And there's going to be this coming together of the Holy Word with the providences of God, the circumstances of our life. And out of that is a wisdom by virtue of the assistance of the Holy Spirit working in us and enabling us to understand the scripture applied to our lives. There will be a wisdom sufficient as a rule of faith and practice. That's the point I think he makes pretty clearly there. May be proficiently equipped for every good work. Second Peter one nineteen and following. Someone read that. So because the prophetic message more fully confirmed, you will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this: that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke. All right, there's that Holy Spirit again. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit works in, with, and through the human agency 
but in a way as not to compromise the integrity of the scriptures, the word of God. And it's interesting how this passage almost directly responds to one of the questions I heard a minute ago. But how do we get around this humanness? Well, whatever scripture is, we're just told by scripture. Now, again, I'm, I'm taking scripture, so it's kind of like the, you know, <laughs> scripture answering itself. But scripture tells us that scripture is not a matter of human in, uh, interpretation. That there's that somehow it transcends the human mind or the wisdom of man in, in a sense that it, it is the very word of God, writ by God, by the Holy Spirit. So there's your passage. Who wrote the scripture? God. But more precisely, the Holy Spirit. How? By this doctrine of inspiration, wherein there are human agents... It is an incarnational event, is it not? There are words here, human words. These aren't angelic words. These aren't divine words. There's not some you know, divine language going on up there you know, that, that we, we're learning. No, it came into our words. Of course, Greek and Hebrew, particularly, and a little Arabic. And words that then can be translated, words that can be studied, words that will, by their very nature, regulate what we can and cannot say because words have meaning and meaning has has concrete boundaries it can't mean everything that's what's so beautiful about scripture it can be studied now there's some things we need to learn about that but it can be studied and you can say thus saith the lord i mean notice the assumption here that it's sufficient again it's not a matter of one's you can be assured somehow that god is speaking and then Hebrews 1 gets a little bit to now the, the, the way in which we understand Scripture, or Scripture understands itself. Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days have spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom all also he made the world. All right, what do we get there? What is scripture about? What's it about? It's about Jesus. I mean, at the end of the day, all scripture is going to be clarified, is going to be illuminated, is going to be explained in Jesus. Now, you think of the Emmaus Road. Somebody remind me what happened on the Emmaus Road? Chapter 24 of Luke. There you go. You almost, I think you did quote it pretty, pretty closely, if you not exactly. Good job. Yeah, there's a sense in which you can open the scriptures from Genesis on, and it, you can derive from it who Jesus is and what he is. And, and that sense in which these travelers were awakened by the exposition of scripture to recognize Jesus for who he is and say, ah, you're him then. You're him. You're it. That's an amazing event that explains this. Now that, that's, I, I, I you know, just anecdotally, um, you know, there are many things about scripture that we love, but one of the things I love is something that's more of a, I mean, sometimes when I begin to believe, doubt that there could be a God, that kind of a raw sort of thing, um, the fact that you forced me, that God's forced me by vocation, I guess, to really go into the scriptures every week, 
I just can't, it, it just, it can't be put into words how unnatural it is. So I'm going to, I'm kind of turning Dawkins on his head right now. How unnatural it is to be reading stories that were, that were written in such different geographies, in different times, under different circumstances, under different rules and regimes and empires even from, from Persian to Babylonian to Assyrian to Egyptian and the cultures that mingle with those empires and to see such an amazing continuity, an amazing linear story that is just phenomenal. And I think I've said this before that, that one of the best things I've ever done is read the Quran for my faith. Uh, first, I see in the Quran many beautiful ethics and teachings. I see some very questionable ones, okay? But what I see most is what isn't there. It's just a collection of wisdom sayings with stories interspersed that have no sense of, of continuity. Of, of uh, There's no novel-esqueness to it, if I can say that word. There's no novelness to it. There, there's no... Uh, story that, that goes, you know, you read the scripture and it becomes very clear as you start reading it, you know, on the balcony that, that these are chapters. These are not books. These are chapters of one book and the amazing continuity. And so you pick that up in this passage. And if it is a story, like every good story, it's going to have a plot. It's going to have a, you know, and, and there's a character here and it, it's just amazing. And it's Jesus Christ. All right, so, so there's your scripture that, that we need to play around with. Um, notice the way now, remember, we're reading the we're, we're doing this with our church over 2,000 years. Here's a summary. We call it our confession of faith, of course. 350 years ago, much of it derived from Calvin and Luther and, this, and the Continental Reformation, Dutch, etc. Much of it derived from Augustine and even the mon mon monastic movement to preserve this. You know, some people forget the monastic movement during the medieval period was the guardian of the scripture. And much of what the reformers had access to in order to rediscover the true meaning of Scripture were some of these monastic uh, uh, teachings and, and commentaries. And uh, so we have a real consensus here. And would someone read, uh, this is the way that, that our consensus defines what we mean by the nature of Scripture. Someone read 1-1. That's really significant. That's that's. Let me put some language on it for you. Um, you it's a cessationist view. Did you notice that? It's it's complete. It, it doesn't need additions to it. Uh, the next set of revelation that's going to come will be when. You guess. But that's it. Now this is amazing. I think um, again I might pop on it a little bit later. But you know sometimes we have this idea that. That you know, we read the Bible and we say, "God, I just wish I could live during this." You know, there were there were thousand year breaks between miracles. I mean, what what happened between 
you know, many, many scholars would, will tell you that by the time we get to the flood, the world had already existed since Adam longer than it has existed since the flood. I mean, there are major gaps. I mean, if you read the genealogies, the, the language of beget, 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 that's a covenantal term. It's following covenant heads. It's not, you don't see a genealogy. If you actually go and look at Matthew's genealogy for instance, it's not going to be this nice, you know, biological genealogy that, that some people look for. It's, it's a covenant. It's a, king, it's a genealogy of kings that gets you to the kingship of Christ. And so you have this, this amazing uh, book, and you have these, and what you notice is what's called a word, deed, word pattern through redemptive history. Word, deed, word. There's this prophesying based on previous words of what to expect next that would, would enable the people of God to be assured that it was God. So there's a sort of foretelling through promises, promises or threats of curse. This is what will happen. This is what God's going to do. He's promising to do this word. Then you would have the action itself, the, say the, the, the flood or the, uh, the exodus. And then you'd have word commentating on what just happened and how that prepares us for the next. And see, that's exactly what we have. And if you've read the Bible, see, we don't, it, it's just so important to read the Bible holistically. But if you were to take the Bible from Genesis to Revelations and really take the time to slow down. I always say this when I talk about Scripture. Slow down. You'd begin to see that pattern very clearly. This word, deed, word. If I were to do one of those little, uh, you know, when you do a cardiogram, what do you call the thing? When you do your heart, the cardio thing. Come on, EKG. You know, you'd have this, you know, kind of thing going. If you were to do redemptive history, you'd see a lot of action, a lot of dot, a lot of action here, then dead. You know, the little thing, or whatever it does, and then, and that's what it would look like. That's what your little, that's what the Bible would look like. You know, just main line. What do you call it? Main line, whatever that's. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I watched too many movies. But you see, yeah, it's exactly what it is. And so that, I think we have this idea that there was all this excitement and special revelation going on and miracles and illumination, all this. No. These people were, there were hundreds and hundreds of years between these prophetic moments, covenant-making moments, new covenant-making moments. And, uh, and so we, we have the end of our Bible following that pattern perfectly when, when there's this exhortation for anyone who adds to these words, let him be an anathema. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. But it's amazing that he maintained a remnant in a non written word state. Like yeah. Noah was still a man after God's heart. Yeah. It was really the only one in that world that in a word, continued to follow. Yeah. But this is well well before Moses ever captured from Genesis. Yeah. Um, and and a remnant that was preserved by means of adhering to the promises and the stipulations of that word. That was prior to it, anticipating the next 
uh, revelation, exactly. But it wasn't a written well, there was oral, and then there was also well, well, until Moses, at least there was written. Yeah, yeah, right. If that's your point, yeah, yeah, it's hard to know for sure, but yeah, it was definitely mostly oral. Well, let's let's look at some definitions then. What, what do we mean? What's going on here? Now, here here's just a little bit of a quick, quick, kind of a quick review of the doctrine of inspiration. Okay, so if you're following this definition, the process in which the words of Scripture are made by the Holy Spirit working through responsible human agents to be revelatory without usurping the personality and mind of the writers. It's a creative work of the Holy Spirit through human instruments. Um, this, these biblical ideas that we've already looked at, God breathed, not scripture breathed into the writers by God, but rather breathed out. It's exhaled is the word in the Greek. It's literally, you could exhaled. Always evidence of God's creation. This language of breathing. Remember where we first see it? He breathed into Adam. There's a creation event. When you hear this language of God breathed, it's a creative event. That's the most important thing that First Timothy is wanting you to know. It's a work of fiat creation. Fiat creation. Out of nothing, Something. These words come not from this universe, not from this place, but like God who created the earth, he created it with substance. And the human flesh of, of the agents that wrote it become that human substance, that the earthly substance, if you will. Um, we have the first, second Peter again, not a private interpretation. It's more than simply being eyewitnesses of historical events, but the interpretation of those events given by God as well. John 10, you know, here's where John defends by the authority of Scripture being that of God himself. Scripture and God lay so close together in the minds of the writers of Scripture that they spoke of Scripture doing what only God can do, the oracles of God. You know, the Word, if you, if you think about how John introduces the Word, what, what does he mean by the Word there? He, he doesn't mean just this semantics here. He's talking about the creative power of God that created all things whatsoever became flesh. The word is synonymous with God in John 1. The word, God, became flesh. And that's, it, it is so much more than we could talk about here, but all through the scripture you see this, the word, you know, if you think about Psalms 119, you know, where, you know, constantly it's just the word, the law, the word, the, the commands. And, and, and these things... <coughs> They have personality to them. <laughs> They're personified. They they do things. They don't just talk about. It's not just a. That, you know what I'm saying. I think you hear what I'm saying. It's not just communication. It's it's doing things. So what do we mean by inspiration? Let's get some clarity. And there's some very serious heresies that can creep into our understanding if we don't understand uh, what orthodox inspiration means. By this process of inspiration, the human and the historical aspects. We, we, would, we would affirm. We don't think of this as a dictation. There was not this sort of, you know, the clouds forming and he's over there taking, you know, dictation from the clouds. Or there wasn't necessarily a verbal, audible, I should say, voice of God. It, it's, it's, it's the mystery of sacrament. It's the mystery of, of so much that we know about the nature of the church even. That there is this mystical union between the sign and the thing signified. 
the word being the sign and the thing signified, which is the very mind of God. Now, that's the language. I just quoted language that historically we use for sacraments. I'm quoting from our confession now. There is a spiritual, which means spirit-filled, spirit-inspired, spirit-empowered, however you want to use that. There is a spiritual relation between the sign, think bread, baptismal waters, you know, wine. There's a spiritual relationship between the sign and the thing signified, which, of course, is, in the scripture, the engrafting of Jesus Christ in, in terms of baptism. The sign in the Holy Communion, the cross of Christ, the thing signified, the word. There's a spiritual relationship between the sign, which are the semantics, and the things signified, the mind of God, the will of God. And this mystery is the mystery of, of incarnation. There's a spiritual relation in the mystery of the incarnation between the flesh, the human flesh, and God himself unionized to be two natures one person the word of God fits into that paradigm that's the best I can give you and so there's this there's a vernacular in the word um, when you read the Greek I mean it takes you just like that to say oh that's John talking I mean by the time you've preached the book of John you're going to say that's a Johnism You'll be able to say it, just like you could say, that's a Prestonism. You know, he, yep, that's Preston. He says Billy Bob all the time. <laughs> you know, that's John. That's John, man. He's, he's always talking about word, temple, presence, light. And then, oh, there's Peter, and oh, there's Paul. Oh, my God, here's Paul, man. He's the rhetorician. This guy can think logically like nobody. Man, he just puts syllogisms together like it's like it's yesterday. And so you just you get it. It's not defined. It's not annulling the hum humanity, just like Jesus did not annul the Palestinianism of his body when he was walking on this earth. And yet, it's God. Now, if it can happen there, it can happen with the Word of God. It's the mystery of the unionization of God to earth. The preparation of this history. We believe in a sovereign God, do we not? We believe in a God that, that chose 1st century or 2nd century B.C. or 7th century B.C., whatever. He chose and orchestrated. We, we have a God so big that we're going to believe that, look, if there's a God, and see, this is why it always starts with, do you believe in God? Because if there's a God, why would it be so difficult for me to understand, comprehend, at least hypothetically in my head, that God did not orchestrate everything Every historical, minute detail, precisely because it became the very historical cloth that enabled his mind to speak to humanity forever. I mean, I was just this morning, you know, I spent four hours this morning, five hours this morning, you know, just wrestling with Esther. And I'm just, you're going to hear this coming out in the sermon. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. This seemingly... Innocent little 
marital spat between a king and a queen became the occasion for the salvation of Israel. And God ordained that so that we could have Esther speak to us about the nature of God and our salvation. You see, that's what we're, we're bringing in. But that starts with an assumption. That starts with a presupposition, right, Doug? The presupposition is, yeah, there's amazing historical details. If I say there is no God, there's therefore chaos represented in those details. But if there's God, well, and God orders all, if God is God, he orders all things whatsoever that comes to pass. And so I'm now viewing it very differently. I'm seeing it as the very revelatory process of God that we had, you know, Xerxes and all these people do these things. So, so this is what we mean by inspiration, first of all. And finally, therefore, not an isolated event or action. It's a teleological character to it, a purposefulness to it, is inherent in the very cause of events towards the preparation of Scripture. Inspiration is found upon the sovereign, providential, and supernatural character of God making himself eminent in history. This is why I keep going back. If you're, if you're a classic theologian, you cannot escape inscripturation with providence. And that's why I'm going to continue to say that in your own Christian life, people. We're going to have to learn. We have a rule that is a canon. Or, you know what that means, a read, or that you would measure something by. You have a measuring stick that regulates our wisdom, and it's the Word of God. But that's always got to be coupled with a recognition that there's nothing that's happening circumstantially in our life that did not get ordered by God. And so all you have to do, if you understand that first in that Timothy passage, is say, what does the scriptures principally teach would be a faithful response to this circumstance. And now you know the will of God. The will of God is so simple, conceptually. It's hard, practically. But it's, instead of fighting with whatever is happening, you embrace it. I don't mean to say that, so, so maybe, you know, you got an eye problem like somebody I know. This doesn't mean that a faithful response wouldn't be to access any means possible to see that that gets healed in this earth for service to God. But it's always to do so with a, with a humble awareness that it may be for my flourishing and for my purpose in life to be blind. And what would be a faithful response to that if that's the case? And, and we just, that's what discerning the will of God is all about. It starts with Scripture. There's my rule. There's my canon. There's my authority. That, that's the wisdom of God. That's the mind of God. Know it and know it well. And then bring that mind of God to whatever circumstance as if that circumstances was, was ordered was, or decreed, was prepared for me. And say, what would be a faithful response to that? What would it mean to live a wise, glorifying God Love God, love your neighbor response to this circumstance. It's pretty easy, conceptually. So, summary, a biblical view of inspiration. Uh, this is a classic sort of description of this. It's verbal. And this is important. That means the words are the word of God, not the mind of Paul, not the mind of the reader. Now, there's big language, and I won't bore you with those reader response kind of stuff, and existentialistic readings and there, there's all kinds of big words but guys this is where this I'm doing something I'm slowing right now down because this is where it all goes wrong right here in other words what exactly was being in spot what where do we locate what what Bart called the kerygma 
the kernel. Where's, where is it? If you say it's Paul, Paul was inspired. Now, what are you going to do? The word merely becomes a window into this psyche or the mind of Paul. It's not the words. It's trying to figure out what was Paul thinking back then. Not what does the word say within its context of this novel. Or if I'm being inspired, so either Paul's being inspired, I'm being inspired, or it's verbal inspiration. If I'm being inspired, that means the word, the scripture, read the scripture, it now becomes a window. It becomes a... a, a, I want to look for a word here. It, It becomes a conduit. I'm looking for the charisma that's in my spirit. I'm looking for the charisma, the word of God that's in me. So that's, that's the rise of what we call neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy, most evangelicals I know, especially in Christendom, are probably more New York. And I'm not just saying that's Hunter said that's, you know, James Hunter. All kinds of folks have noticed this. Rick Lentz, that evangelicals are by and large neo-orthodox in their treatment of Scripture. And what that means is that we celebrate a reader response understanding of Scripture. So, I got the Bible, I give it to this table, and I say, guys, let's read 1 Timothy 3. We read 1 Timothy Hey, Rob, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, God used this passage to tell me, to tell me that, blah, 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 blah. You know? In other words, the passage was simply the, it was the window, it was the media through which God's Spirit worked through that passage to spark something in me. Something sparked in me. And that's the word I was looking for. What happened to me when I read the scripture? That's called serendipity Bible studies, if you've ever done it. Let's walk around the room. Okay, that was great. So God's telling you that, that you know, spring is a time to rejoice. What about you, Doug? Man, the Lord's telling me it's time to get a new job. Good. That's creative. The more creative, the better. That means the Holy Spirit's living here. Oh, man, we got some Holy Spirit going on here. That was so creative, man. Wow, the Holy Spirit's alive and well here. What about you, Jim? Oh, wow, man. You see what this is doing? We're looking for this Holy Spirit to inspire me, and we're going to call that the Word of God. It's not. Every classical from the time of the beginning would say that it's the words themselves that are inspired that are breathed out by God. We're not trying to retrace through Scripture Paul's psychological state of mind or something. We're not trying to ourselves get an experience from reading it and call that the revelation of God. It's the words themselves. And if it's not, what would you lose? I already illustrated a little bit. What would happen if it was either the reader response word or the, uh, uh, the, the experience of Paul word? Amen. What? Objectively, you just lost it. It's become the. And now, why is that so prominent now? Do you all remember two Bible studies ago? Or was it last week? Remember modernism? The subjective turn? Post Kant? Manual Kant, you know? Did away with pure reason to make room for faith? Well, what is faith if it's not reasonable? It's experience. Thus, the rise of modernism. Retchel and, and Scarmarker and Hegel and all these guys. That's what they were doing. People we would call 
of a camp. Evangelicals doing it all the time. Don't even know they're doing it. So that word verbal is important. Now the rest of them I'll do quickly. Plenary means the whole scripture, not just parts of it. Confluent meaning this idea that there's a human divine confluency that produces those words. It is in Greek. That's human. Divine, the Holy Spirit that gives meaning to the Greek that we can study. And then inerrancy. Uh, that all scripture is true. Now this here's the important caveat. Insofar as it intends to affirm, in whatever it intends to affirm. So let me give you an example. Was the scripture written for a modern scientist, do you think? I mean, was that meant to be a, a, a textbook of, of how God created the world? And from a natural science informed question and, and answer? Not at all. What was it intended to be? I won't do it now. You've, some of you heard me do this. It was, a, it was a historical problem of a covenant, of the, of the Mosaic covenant. A historical prologue. What is it that this great king that, is being, that you're being asked to enter into a treaty with, what is it this great king has done? Answer, Genesis 1 and 2. This, well, Genesis 1 is who is, who is God. It's, it's, it's the... It's the uh, uh, well, whatever. And, uh, and then the second creation is, starts a historical prologue that goes all the way until, Genesis, until Exodus. Who is this guy? What is, what is his great achievements? Well, let me tell you about his great achievements. This God, he's king of kings and lords of lords. All spheres of creation, all three, with their little kings over them. Up in the sky, land, etc. And God on the seventh has no king. He is king of all kings over all spheres. That's who your God is. And that's all I'm supposed to say. It's just amazing. So it's inerrant insofar as what it intended to affirm. And that's very important. I won't go through the defenses of inspiration here, but I want to flesh this out one more time and I'm going to stop for questions. Do you see the low view of inspirations? Next page, four. In my, my version, it's four. Y'all's might be different. Low view of inspiration, are we there? This, this gives you an example of where you go wrong in, in what we just talked about. If you're a liberal Protestant, and I mean that in an academic sense, I'm not trying to be personal here. Christians can be all three of these, by the way. You can be a liberal Christian, liberal neo-Orthodox. But, but in terms of your understanding of Scripture, and whether it's a healthy theology or not, the liberal Protestant view, basically, the biblical author is inspired. The locus moves from what has been written to what the author experienced. Identify the experience of the author, and then a person can experience it him or herself. That's how you get to things like, well, Easter was really about not a... I mean, the myth of resurrection was, was is just how Paul would say it in a first century myth language. He's really experiencing a personal transformation. We should all want that. So this is about personal transformation. This is not about a historical event that happened after three days of being in a grave. That's classic liberalism. But it got there because of a hermeneutic that said we read the Bible expecting to find the word in the experience of Paul, not in the words themselves. That describes a historical event. Neo-Orthodox view took it just to the other extreme, like I talked about. The reader is inspired. This confuses, of course, the doctrine of inspiration with the doctrine of illumination, 
where Bible is God's word only insofar as God speaks through it to the individual reader. Denies the objectivity of the theological truth, rather truth is subjective, this view reveals its existential leanings. Both these views divorce the work of the Holy Spirit from the text itself in its historical context. The words of scripture are separated from the history through which they came, denies the sovereign and providential work of God through the Holy Spirit. The locus of inspiration is the self. These views are in contrast to a third and biblical view when the text itself, within its historical context, is breathed out or inspired. Um, and we have these various variations of those two views. I'm not going to bore you. Um, and so, again, uh, let's stop there for a minute and see what you're thinking. What do you think? This is what we mean by inspiration. I spent a lot of time on that. We're going to go a little quicker on some other things, but I wanted to really slow down because this is where the beginning of all the, the bad stuff happens and how we understand inspiration. Anybody? Yeah. Mm. Good. Yeah, that's a great. Thank you. What are you expecting from your preacher? It all depends on which one of these views you want. If this is supposed to create an experience in me, you're neo-orthodox. <laughs> I mean, I'm being a little... Please know I'm being overly generalized here, just to make a point. I mean, because you've ever wanted an experience... <laughs> I'm not calling you... You know, most of us are naive and don't even know what we are. Uh, that's sitting out there. So it's not like you've intended to have this view of inspiration and all that. But yeah, that's, Rob's very helpful here, useful here, that what are you expecting in the sermon event? If you believe the scripture itself is inspired, then what I'm hoping is that you'll help me understand these words in the context of the word of God, total, as it would bring me to the fulfillment of all of it in Jesus Christ. And you're really wanting to make that case. And it means you're going to have to get to the words, the expositional. Very different than those other two situations. And again, I'm not, I don't have it here because that wasn't the purpose of it. I think we've looked at it. But, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to my own family here when I speak of evangelicals, right? I don't use that word up here ever, as you know, because evangelical in New England does not mean what I experienced it growing up. It's much more of a political term. So if you're new up here, don't use the word. But, but, um, but as an evangelical, someone who was born, again, into the evangelical movement through my campus ministries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, when I went to seminary, I can tell you, after seven years of being a, a pretty, you know, you know, public leader in evangelicalism, um, I was just, I was turning red in my cubicle when I started reading this kind of stuff. I'm going, oh my gosh, I wrote a letter to my, my, you know, I wrote a letter to the guys I've been discipling back at Georgia, and I said, guys, you know, don't listen, just, just really check out everything I ever said to you, would you please? You know, and I think the Lord was gracious. These men are grown, they're, they're godly people, they're elders in their churches, there's some really wonderful things going on in these people's lives, to the praise of God's glory, because God, thankfully, isn't limited to our failures, you know? So, I mean, and there was a lot good about the ministry, too. Don't get me wrong. It was very Christ-centered and a lot of other things. But, 
But yeah, I was. Let's let's just. It's all right, guys. If if we're if we're hearing this stuff, I guess I'm saying, and I mean that's what we're here for is to learn and to ch- and to grow and to and to change opinions. And you've heard me change opinions here as a church. If you've been here long enough, I'm, I hope I'm growing. That means I'm going to change my mind on some things. So let's change our mind. If this is a, so, don't be embarrassed. But yeah, most evangelicals are probably, without knowing it, unintentionally, in the, in at least practically being uh, neo-Orthodox. And that's been documented over and over. Again, I'm, I'm thinking of all kinds of folks. Nathan Hatch and uh, Rick Lentz and James Hunter and one of goes, David Wells, John Stott, every one of them accused neo-evangelicalism is, is uh, neo-Orthodox in its way of approaching the Bible. Many, many times. I'm, I'm, I'm distinguishing modern evangelicalism from classical evangelicalism, which would be primo, yeah. I could certainly see that there is such a thing as absolute truth, and God's word presents absolute uh, truth. At the same time, I'm faced with making choices Mm -hmm. in my Mm -hmm. life, decisions, Mm -hmm. Uh, and in a similar way in which there are the laws of physics, and I, I need help with naming one of them, but I know about gravity, what that is. It mm-hmm. says the airplane ought to come down, mm-hmm. and then somebody's got a principle of lift and so forth that keeps it up. So they're, they're these, both are true, right? but they, they work together. Yeah. And in terms of application of the absolute truth, assuming that we understand the absolute truth, for a recovery center uh, to take that truth and make those right choices, I don't think it's all that simple. And well, I don't think it's ever simple if you mean by the fact that it's going to, yeah. I need, I need grace. Yeah. Yeah. I need Amen. guidance to help to do that. You don't hear me say anything other than that, do you? I'm not sure. Okay. Well, we can I'm keep talking sure. then. Yeah, that's good. Is it a matter that, all right, I've got, the, I've got the word, I've got the documentation, I've got illumination, and we have kind of a deist approach now that God started that in motion, so let's see how you do with that. Well, for what it's worth, it, from what I see that I just presented to you, that is about as undeist as you could get, um, because God is active sure. in the world. Wow. In illumination, and he's active in the world through the word of God. I mean, a deist wouldn't even recognize the word of God because that would be a contradiction to deism. So it, there's nothing deist here, not even close if you know deism. But, but to your point, I think your other point, um, I know what you're 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 asking for, and and I'm pushing back a tad only because it's true that there is a subjective element to it, to bringing scripture into your life. There's a subjective element to that. And that's exactly where I'm relying on illumination. But I want to be careful that that subjective, there's a rule of faith and practice. There's something that regulates that subjectivity that is objective. And we need to balance that. You need to, the key thing I'm trying to do is make sure that we don't lose the objectivity and the exclusive objectivity. There is no objectivity except that it is incarnated. There is no objectivity because everything else is by nature subjective. And so all you have, the key thing is when I say it's easy, 
I mean, I know what my program is. Let's put it that way. I know the program. Now, it's like, uh, it's easy. I mean, you know, the, the game of, of uh, lacrosse is easy. It's all who puts the ball in the net more than the others. It's easy. It's a very simple sport. Um, you know, and my son could pick it up in ninth grade and be incredibly good at it, unlike soccer. It's not an easy sport. It's a lot more complicated. But it's easy. The program's easy. The program of, of, of what we're doing here and what I see happening there in First Timothy is that we have one source to regulate our lives as from the mind of God. And it's a careful study of the words of Scripture themselves in the context of those words, as we'll say. Now, I need to take that word and I need to bring that into the circumstances, the providences of my life. And yes, there's going to be a subjective element to that. And I need the Holy Spirit that gives me the will to see the Scripture and its implications for that event. But I'm not going to call that revelation, because that's objective. I'm going to call it illumination. That's it. Now, we can talk some more about it, but hopefully I've clarified a little bit. Anybody else? Here's a question from our yeah. online viewers. Good. Who is it? So, this is one of the newly born twins, the Hancock twins, and he's invoking Clark. He wants to know how do we avoid attributing the revelatory power of Christ to Scripture? And uh, is Christ or Scripture our final revelation? He's talking about biblicism there. Um, so I think it's a false dichotomy <laughs> at the end of the day. I, I think the word of Christ is the word of Scripture. The word of Scripture is the word of Christ. Um, by the whole, the script, and the reason I get there is uh, the Holy Spirit. What is what does the Holy Spirit speak? Anybody remember? What is He commissioned to speak? The Holy Spirit when He comes uh, after the death of Christ. He's to speak my words, Jesus's words. So I, that's an academic distinction that I just I think is a little bit of a straw man personally. Um, and this person, I don't know if, if he if he's thinking through that or not. Um, he, he probably knows that. That's why he's asking it. But um, the point—that's a clear—that's a very important point, though, because because you think you got to stop and ask, what is the Holy Spirit inspiring? He's inspiring the words of God, particularly the words of Christ, who sent him. Christ sent the Spirit to reveal. So he he, he might want to follow. That's a great question, though. Thank you uh, for doing uh, for asking that twin <laughs> or whoever it was. Uh, it's a great question, but yeah, it clarifies that. I need to move on. I just I can't believe how much time we've already taken. Um, if you if you could, pull, I'm gonna I'm gonna move off of your your handout, and I'm gonna show you a little PowerPoint that'll get me through some things pretty quickly. I hope. I, hope. I kind of anticipate this might happen, so we're gonna do that. Um, now, as always, uh, there. You know, I give you this handout. It's I think about a 20 page handout. Obviously, I, I never give you these handouts thinking we're gonna cover it. I give it to you because it really is, I hope you see it as a gift. Um, when you need to talk to someone about any of this, you have some resources here. You have some people you can quote. You have some Bible studies you can dig into. So what I now want to do is make sure you know what you have in front of you and how you can utilize it, this little 20-page booklet, basically. And and so that's what I'm hoping you're going to do. But if you could get to me, uh, go to page um, 13. 
And this is a wonderful thing that we have to stop and, and think about when we talk about the Scripture. When it comes to our approach to the Bible, what we call hermeneutics, it is sometimes easy to forget the obvious. But from a I-believe-in-God point of view, that's my presupposition, if Scripture is a communication from God to us, it is not to obscure His will for us in our salvation, but to clarify it. Now that's a really amazingly simple, but not so obvious point sometimes. It is not to diminish God's sovereignty over us. Think about that. Whatever we do with the scripture, the point is not to to lose the objective sovereignty of God over our lives. It's meant to enhance it, to expand it, his lordship. It is not to blunt God's glory, but to amplify it. Any theory or practice in the interpretation of scripture or the use of scripture that denies the obvious refutes its own usefulness in this endeavor. And, um, and so that's a nice little kind of, does my view of Scripture and my use of Scripture, does it blunt or enhance the objective lordship of Christ, the ability for Christ to say no and yes? The ability of Christ to say, you know, to, to, for me to know definitively this is the mind of Christ. I can test it. How can you test it if it's just subjective? You can't. Objectivity is so crucial to preserve, which is why it's so crucial to preserve a high view of the Word of God as sufficient in every good work. And I'm quoting Scripture, for God's sake. So let's keep that in mind. It's sufficient for every good work. The program then is to say, what is the mind of God in Holy Scripture? The definitive, fixed, clear, if not always clear enough, will of God contained in the Holy Scriptures, and how then would that apply by inference to this circumstance in my life? And, and there are principal things that you're going to look for. It's called the wisdom. You know, it's a reason why we have a whole genre of, of, of Scripture called wisdom. It's not I'm looking for this blueprint. It's I'm looking for wisdom, and it's a step-by-step process. Sorry. You're not going to get a blueprint the day you become born again and say, here's God's will for my life. It's sitting up here. He has a blueprint, by the way. I think he's got one. It's all planned out. <laughs> Praise God, but it would be toxic if we knew it. If I'd known even half of what that blueprint was when I first became a Christian, it would have overwhelmed me. I never would have made it. I would have, oh, my gosh. You know, I had no idea that's, going to, that's what it's going to take, Lord. See, he gave me that grace step by step and a step-by-step wisdom of what to do as I understand Scripture and applying it to my life. That's very important. So with that, what I want to do is the next thing you see, when we look at, so I want to focus now on some of the issues that we confront in modernity. I'm just going to remind you that they are there. By the way, this PowerPoint is also on that, if you look at your thing, it's sitting right there. It is really, I must say, a pretty good PowerPoint. You need to look at it. It's got a lot of information in there. And it's simple for you to follow, bullet form, and then this big 20-page thing backs it up with a lot of other stuff, okay? So you could take that, and you could take this, and I think you could find a lot of answers to a lot of questions you probably have, and, and that's what we're here to help you do. So let's do that real quickly. Um, the historical accuracy issue gets to the issue of, does Scripture, is it, is it, is it believable in light of history? Does it truly speak to what really happened in history? And it's the issue of archaeology, because what other source do we know 
have to have history, but archaeology, and I guess histories too, but a lot of the Bible, this is the only history we have of it. And so I have a whole section here from, it's not my, I took it from uh, Hugenberger, whose PhD was, was in, in this whole area at Harvard, but he's also an evangelical. And, and I took a lot of this stuff from him. So I, I must say, I, I added a little bit to it, but a lot of it's his. You ought to just go and do it. It's really kind of funny, and it's fun, but it's going to really encourage you. Say, so you know, there's absolutely not one iota of evidence archaeologically that doesn't, in, in fact, support the historicity of the scripture. It's unbelievable, and he's going to show you that. So with that in mind, we're going to skip over that, and I'm going to go to the issue of canon. Many of you remember, of course, the, the Da Vinci Code. How many people saw that or read the book? Well, this is the whole issue of canon. And I'm going to get to it. It's on page, you got to keep going here. I think it's 50. Isn't that what we said? I got it. Okay, I don't. I need to follow it here. 55. 55. Let's see here. So I'm going to pick up with, uh, yeah, 50, 50. So this is the issue of reliability, the question of the canon. And, um, and here's the way it's set up. In his book, Can I Trust My Bible, Lard Harris concluded, we can now be sure that copyists work with great care and accuracy on the Old Testament, even back to 225 B.C. Indeed, it would be rash skepticism that would now deny that we have our Old Testament in a form very close to that which used by Ezra when he taught the word of God to those who had returned from the Babylonian captivity. I mentioned that earlier. Um, and then, of course, we have some, some very important discoveries um, that I mentioned here, um, w w and this is all deals with the transmission, the recording of the scripture, and the same scripture that was quoted in the Bible <laughs> as scripture. So, so that's the really important thing here. And so I, I hit on that in the next one. I talk about the Septuagint again. That's the, the whole uh, Hebrew Bible was rewritten in the Greek, and that's called the Septuagint or LXX. And um, and this gets to that, and it, it confirms perfectly. And then you go into the New Testament, and we get into some things here, um, and you'll just notice a few things that I, I, I just let you know about. You know, there, we have these two whole, entire New Testament. Uh, now think about the scripture, the New Testament was completed somewhere around, I don't know, if, if you mean by that the original, yeah, 100, 150, something like that. So already we have actually pieces of material that goes right back to that era of, of this material. So, you know, the whole issue of, of transmission and reliability in terms of copyists and all of this stuff, there's been a lot of work done on that. That was kind of a modernist controversy that's now passed. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that anymore, but I at least give it to you. By far, the greater issue that's hit our generation is the issue of canon. It's not, do we have reliable texts? That really isn't a, a huge issue from what I can tell. What is a big issue is... Was and it plays right into the modern sort of politi political theology sort of stuff. It's the whole issue of were there other interpretations of the ministry and life of Christ? And why did this particular interpretation, if there were a win, and the other one lose? What happened there? And of course, you know the thesis of the Da Vinci Code. Dan Brown and all of this stuff. It's a product of man, not God. False testimony by men who possessed a political agenda to solidify their power base. These are all quotes. Commissioned and financed by Constantine. That means he's, he's putting canonics at a very late date, 5th century, which is crazy, as you'll see. The Gospels they attempted to destroy have been discovered as a part of an ancient library of Coptic scrolls and highlight the glaring discrepancies and fabrications 
of the Bible. So there's a book that came out, Two Christianities, um, Two Bibles, etc. And uh, so we know them, of course, as the gospel, as the Gnostic gospel. What you'll find here, and I get in, I give you more of it in your in your paper, is a defense to that. It's going to tell you, okay, how, can I be assured that our Christianity is the right one? By the way, they're vastly different. The way I like to illustrate it is if you're a Gnostic, if you understand the Gnostic interpretation, and by the way, if you've read them, like the Gospel of Thomas, and we, I took a whole course on this stuff, and it's pretty crazy stuff. It's very mystical. It's very all this stuff. But, but if you read them, at the very heart and soul, um, let me try to, I think I have a quote here that will help you with that. Um, let's see here. Two Christianities, page uh, 60 here. Look at, look at, for instance, we are not at the fourth one. Um, it's, it's an ardent call for self-awareness and introspection and the empowering message that divine wholeness will be restored, not by worshiping false gods in an illusory material world, but by a recognition of the inherent divinity within ourselves. We are called not to a savior, but to a deeper insight, wherein, quote, the distinction between savior and saved ceases to exist, such that you must save yourself, and in doing so, you save God. Um... Let me try to put this in perspective. Christianity that we have, you take every Christian denomination that exists, Eastern Orthodox, Western Orthodox, every denomination, and we all agree that the serpent was bad and not good. We all agree that original sin was rejecting the lordship of God, the creator of the universe. We all agree that our sins are forgiven by the atonement made in Christ. We all agree, and I just could go on and on to basic, we all agree that the body is good, not bad. That, that, that even if it's, and therefore resurrection. I mean, on and on it goes. We, we, we agree on everything. And if you're a Gnostic, turn every bit of that, what I just said, everything I just said, turn it right on its head. The serpent was telling the truth. You know, why did we write that story, reconvene that story? Because of Constantinian patriarchalism and subduing humanity to itself. And on and on and on it goes. And, um, and so what do we say to this stuff? And here's the main thing. There was a big council around a thing called Marcionism. And the big question was, is Christianity a continuation or not of the Jewish religion? If it's not, there are all kinds of scriptures that are going to get taken out. Obviously, the Old Testament will get taken out, but many others. And um, if it is, that became a very important rule as to how we interpret the true interpretation of Jesus. And that happened in the, in, in two, in the 200s. 300 B, uh, AC, 300, uh, the third century. And, um, and so this, so already, and I make this point, the test of the Old Testament, we believe the church doesn't confer authority on the scripture. This is a very important part in your confessions. You'll read it. But it recognized what was already there, self-attested to internally. The witness of the Old Testament witness, uh, I, I make that point. This was not a battle that was waged in the 4th century, but in the middle of the 2nd century, wherein the winners were not the politically advantaged, but disadvantaged. If anything, it was a, the power players were on the other side 
of the orthodoxy. In other words, the whole point of, of Gnosticism says that, that, that the, the right side, or, or the, the, what we call traditional Christianity, it won because it had the power of Constantinianism behind it. Well, the debate was actually fought in the third century, and the peasants, it was you know the same kind of people that we saw in the New Testament who didn't have authority in Rome, who were being killed, who, who got it right. And so there's a very different thing going on there. And then the canon, this whole canon was mostly settled by 200 AD and formally ratified ecumenically by every church that we have today, Eastern, even in Western, in 350 AD at the Synod of Laodicea. Um, I'm running out of time, but is there a quick question about canon? That's the brief argument. If somebody really wants some stuff, there's a guy named uh, Amon who, who's got this nice little booklet on it. And he's a New Testament scholar, and it's just, he pretty much put it to rest when he, he did his work. But anyway, anybody got a question on that? Is this helpful? So if you're getting with your, you know, when somebody says, well, which Christianity is it? We all know there's another New Testament out there. Well, there is. It's very inchoate. It's, it's not very pieced together very well. And it's radical stuff. <laughs> but it's there. And, of course, we believe it's Gnosticism, and it was the mysticism that Paul was, you know. There, there's this notion that the, the earlier you go back, the more orthodox you get. Anybody have a problem with that? Is older already always more orthodox? Yeah, exactly. Man, you have Gnosticism. Obviously, John was writing, and most people believe Gnosticism was, there was an Old Testament, you know, Old Covenant there was a there's a Gnosticism that was a Jewish form of Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is nothing more than pagan religion. If you ever hear the word, you know, this pagan religion of the Old New Testament, that's Gnosticism. The whole spirit world. And the reason it's so popular now, Gnosticism, is wouldn't it be great with all the ecumenical focus on, on the pluralism, the issue of pluralism? See, Gnosticism is very, very uh, it's it's very friendly to the idea of pluralism because it's all about spiritism. So it, it, and so she, uh, Elaine Pagel and others down at Princeton shows how all this global uh, influx of, of Hindus and Muslims and all of this stuff that was pre all these guys were coming in the Middle East and Gnosticism was susceptible to that and it, you know so it fits a beautiful narrative today of, of this sort of we're all really the same religion but it's just not the way it is. Um, the next category is this issue of, of, of errors. Um, six categories of errors that people claim are in scripture, false descriptions of cosmology, the sun rose, we all know the sun doesn't rise, so the Bible's wrong. I mean, come on, that's pretty easy, right? You know, uh, what do we call that? Anthropomorphism, seeing, you know, describing things as we see it, and that's exactly what the Bible's doing most of the time. It's, it's meant to be incarnational. Discrepancies in chronology, um, we do deal with this when we do the Bible interpret class. I hope you'll take it if you haven't. But, you know, you have to ask the question, was the intent to give you a chronology? If you read the Gospels, it wasn't. Very clearly, you have to read the Gospels as theology, not history. It's historically based. It's all historical. But they are redacting the story to make a point. So one Gospel shows the fig tree weeping on the way to Jerusalem. Another one shows it weeping after Jerusalem. He's just telling you the story of a weeping, of a weeping tree. And he's trying to tell you the story of the weeping tree is it sets up a point that's going to say, aha. And if you have two very different points of, of what you're telling about that story, it'd be the same way that if I told you a story about, 
what happened last week with Lisa and I up uh, on the road heading up to Adirondacks. I might set it up for you differently. And I might start with, I'm walking on the road outside of the bathroom on the side of the road there, what do you call those things, those rest areas. And I looked at my wife and I said, it felt like I needed to take my shoes off. Of course, I'd just come out of this study the night before about Elizabeth Barrett Brown's poem and how, you know, and we were looking at this beautiful sunset. Now, I could start with that story. And then I could back up and tell you the context of that story that started from the time we left our house. And how that moment was a very, you know, in some ways different from what was happening before. So there's this kind of nice, I could do that. Now, Lisa, well, she's a math teacher. I know what she would have done. You know, we, we got in the car. We, we turned on the key. Um, we pushed the pedal. We backed up. We turned left. And she would give you a very detailed uh, map for how we got there. And at the end of the map, it would be, and my husband told me as I was walking out of the bathroom, and I didn't know what the heck he was talking about at first, that we ought to take our shoes off. Now, see, very different chronology, same historical event. Meant to say two different things. And that's, that's valid. We do it all the time. Um, misquotes. Well, we don't have this sort of uh, copyright law stuff in the first century. It wasn't at all um, unethical to quote someone. And to quote someone within the context. So usually when scripture is quoted in the scripture, it's going to give you one quote and it's going to assume you know the whole story behind that quote with this oral tradition. It's, it's almost like it's a little title, a figure, a figure quote. And you're going to have to go back and you're going to go and you're going to marvel about it. That's one of the things you, it takes time. You've got to slow down. You haven't heard me say it, right? Slow down. Take the time. When Paul quotes the Old Testament, go read the whole chapter. You're going to be amazed at what you're going to find and how he literally just imported the whole argument of Isaiah into that little phrase. And he wasn't misquoting at all. You see? Old Testament morality. All right, that's a hard one. But we've got to understand there's spiritual warfare going on. And there's two different covenantal contexts for that spiritual warfare. One geopolitical, one spiritual. Heaven and one is, is a land, heaven the other is eternal life. Um, how does one prefigure and typologize the other one? What's the purpose of the Old Testament? You've got to read the whole book and understand it's like a novel. If I read chapter 2 of A Good Mystery and stopped there, I'd probably misunderstand chapter 2. It would look like one thing. Until I got to the end, I go, whoa, that changes the way I read chapter 2. You see? So there's a lot of stuff like that that goes on that you have to think about. False descriptions of cosmology, I go into this stuff. Scripts in chronology, I give you some examples. You can go back to this. Misquotes, I give you some examples. Um, I'm going to have to stop there, unfortunately. I hope this has been fun. Uh, we've started it. Um, what was the other thing we were going to do here? Um, I think we're good. Y'all go through it. Oh, I know we're going to go through a whole section on, on how to interpret Scripture. I'm tempted to do this again next week. Just pick up with it. I'll let you know. I'm really thinking about doing that. Because next week what we're going to do is get at that chapter 6 of uh, the Holy Scripture. And that gives you a chance to really review this stuff. But you go and, and there's this really clear explanation of how then we use Scripture in our confession that, that I was going to go through. But this is where we would actually going to turn to some of the questions you were talking about, Bill. We're going to... 
All right. Some of these passages that deal with the work of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit. So what we go to is these three misconceptions of the of the church and of the Holy Spirit in relationship to reading scripture. And I'll think about it. Doug, would you pray for us?